The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that we have devoted a fair amount of attention to over the past year is the entire question of uh, world heritage, uh, cultural heritage, and especially over the past year or so, uh, the question of saving archaeological sites as being one of the most important elements of what this profession can do. Um, In that connection, as many of you know, there is this ongoing issue with ISIS, and there are uh, very major concerns that actually go back to the Iraq War with the looting of archaeological sites, their destruction, and the theft of artifacts, destruction of sites, and ultimately their transport by the ISIS people and formerly by other rebels of antiquities into the West. So we have talked about that in several occasions in several contexts. And my guest today is uh, Dr. Christopher Thornton, who is the Senior Director of Cultural Heritage and the, the chair of the Committee for Research and Exploration at the National Geographic Society. He is also the director of the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Bat in the Sultanate of Oman. He received his PhD in 2009 from the University of Pennsylvania. And his story is one that is very interesting because he uh, had gotten his PhD and had indicated to me before we got on the air that his was a career pathway that we're seeing more and more about archaeologists who don't stream directly into academic venues. And I would like to uh, welcome to the program Dr. Chris Thornton. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much, Joe. So I guess the first question I want to ask you, I mean, you have a very obviously uh, heralded position at uh, NGS, and you're very involved in cultural heritage. I'd like to go back and talk to you about your graduate education, how you got into archaeology, and how your pathway ended up where it was. Sure. Um, Well, I, like a lot of 
students of archaeology. I spent about a million years in graduate school. Um, I graduated in 2009, right after the economic crash. And uh, I'm sure you remember that for academics, that was a, a terrible period to be coming out of grad school. Um, there were no jobs. Uh, there were no postdocs. It was very limited. Uh, and I, like you know, all of my colleagues at the time who were coming out then, uh, struggled. You know, I went into adjunct teaching, as you do, and, um, you know, you don't earn a lot of money for a lot of hours, and it was stressful. At the same time, I was um, uh, working at this project in Oman that I had started in grad school. Uh, my advisor, Gregory Posell, had, in his retirement, started a project that he was handing over to me. Um, and so I was trying to run this, this large, you know, real big dig project in Oman, at this UNESCO World Heritage Site. So there was a lot of attention. There was a lot of pressure. Uh, and at the same time, I'm just trying to make a living with my degree in archaeology. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was kind of serendipity. I, I was doing a bunch of random projects around Washington, D.C., including teaching, but also exhibit work, um, ghostwriting, you name it. And I stumbled into the National Geographic Society um, actually looking for photos in their archive to use in an exhibit, and um, discovered that they had a job opening to run research grants, and they were looking for somebody with a PhD. So I kind of wandered into the guy's office, and the rest is history. So I often, you know, use my example. It was, it was dumb luck. Uh, it really had nothing to do with uh, my abilities. I had never run a grant program before, um, I was in the right place at the right time, but I also kept all of my options open, you know, and I, I always like to tell that message to people because six years later, um, I have had so many more opportunities, you know, seeking this job outside of academia, and yet I still run a project, um, not full-time by any means, but I'm still publishing, I get to advise graduate students, and I get to be involved in the field in a way that um, is really rewarding. I help other archaeologists to get um, support funding from National Geographic. So that's been sort of my path, which is unusual, but hopefully uh, inspires others to look around a little bit more. Well, I think, Chris, what you put your finger on is something that uh, is, is, is near to my, and dear to my heart. And that is simply that in this day and age, the traditional pathways of archaeological employment are basically something of the past. Right. And that you are, as an archaeologist, ultimately left to your own resources, that the modus operandi, if you will, is not what it used to be. Um, and that it, you have to, in a sense, put yourself in the right place at the right time. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. And I would also, uh, you know, I always tell graduate students, just because you have an archaeology degree doesn't mean the only thing you can do is archaeology, right? We actually, right. archaeologists are uniquely qualified in a number of different skills, including project management, uh, data management, <laughs> data analysis. Um, and, you know, as long as we can keep our, keep our options open, keep our eyes wide open, um, you know, I know archaeologists in Washington who do all sorts of things. Some work for the government, some work for NGOs, some are academics. Um, and there's, so there's multiple pathways, and that's something that I've always um, felt strongly about, sort of telling that part of my story simply to, you know, encourage others to look around as well and not be despondent about it. 
Well, tell us a little bit about how your pathway has emerged. So you get this job at, at the National Geographic Society. What are your responsibilities there? How does that put you in touch with archaeology? And how that does that, in a way, expand your scope to extend beyond the confines of the profession and possibly into things like public outreach and grants and that sort of thing? Sure. When I, uh, when I started, I was simply the program officer, so I was the, essentially the glorified bureaucrat of our research grants. I helped um, field, field researchers to get funds from National Geographic, um, and then once they finished their projects, um, I read their reports, and I worked with them to try to get involved with our media. If they had a story to tell, um, I was kind of their agent, right, their talent agent. I would be the person to translate their report to our magazine or our channel or our books um, or online um, partners. And then that was my role really for about five years. Um, in the past few years, we've, we've been going through a number of changes here at the Society. Um, we have a new CEO, Gary Nell, who came in with a number of great new ideas. Uh, and one of them was about um, trying to find the things the society has done for decades and really hone in on what is it that makes us unique and special and what can we do differently or what could we um, increase and improve. Uh, and one of the arenas that he was very keen on was cultural heritage. Um, you know, this was something that we have done, you know, most famously Hiram Bingham and the discovery of Machu Picchu was our first real archaeology project over 100 years ago. Uh, but since then, we've been involved for decades with repatriation efforts, protecting archaeological sites, exploring and researching and conserving through grant making, through our explorers. But we really wanted to lean into that, um, the, the, the protection side uh, and the raising awareness of the problems facing archaeological sites. So um, I was appointed to um, help the whole society to kind of advise them in this arena, to, to make myself um, the, the ambassador to the cultural heritage community, um, those, that is the people out there who are doing community outreach, doing uh, policy and litigation work, um, do, working with UNESCO, working with governments, uh, to really get to know them and their needs and then come back and help advise the society on how we could be helpful uh, in fostering kind of the, the next generation of, of cultural heritage um, heroes, really. So that was how I got this fancy new title, which <laughs> um, <laughs> Senior Director of Cultural Heritage is I'm really playing a, an advisory role and, and trying to come up with the most impactful way that the society can lean into this problem. So you bring up some very fascinating issues here. I mean, archaeologists coming out of universities, including the elite universities like the one you went to, um, they are not trained for this at all. Uh, no. We know that. Uh, we have, I know that I've been involved with the Society of American Archaeology to try to reorient traditional programs to fit into uh, 21st century venues and, and, and arenas. It's not been easy uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the uh, positive signs of all of that is if you look around and you see the younger academic professionals even, they all have experience in some form of cultural resource management, cultural heritage, and that kind of 
a more applied, if you will, a preparation and orientation that the world is going to. How do you see, uh, if you can, because you're now, I think, in your position capable of influencing how things go, how do you see this evolving in the next 10, 20 years, especially in light of the fact that if, if these types of things that go on, which certainly is happening in Syria and the Middle East, there aren't going to be any sites left. Yeah. And how how do we reorient? How do we train our people to uh, to do that and 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 to see that their ultimate mission has to be in outreach and preservation? How do you do that? It's a really good question. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the benefits of having archaeology really couched mainly within anthropology departments in this country is an, is a sensitivity to the need to engage communities, living communities. Um, to take their perspectives and their needs into consideration. Uh, and so, for sure, here in the United States, I see among the younger generation uh, a strong desire to engage with communities um, and not just engage with ceramic types or you know, right. stone tools, that there is an understanding that the modern and the past go hand in hand. Um, so I think, I agree with you, I think um, in the next 10 years, we're going to see that kind of community outreach um, and community involvement becoming much more common, less avant-garde, um, less, you know, it, there was a period, you know, the post-processual movement in archaeology um, was all about multivocality and community and all this, and that was, you know, really avant-garde and really pushed the boundaries but now that it's become kind of mainstream, I think you're going to see it um, become as functional as the need for radiocarbon dating. Um, but and, but and how that's do you something... change it? How do you change the model in, in, in the training grounds, the academic training grounds? Because that still hasn't happened. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I think one of the, the key things is there are programs in the United States in public archaeology, um, and I see those growing in cultural heritage studies or centers of cultural heritage not just in elite universities. Um, and I think those are really important. I think they, they emphasize that part of the education that archaeologists should be receiving, particularly at a Ph.D. level, should involve some element of public engagement or engagement with the cultural heritage sphere, which, as you say, we're not trained in. Um, those of us who, who do it tend to do it because we learn it in the field. Right. Um, it becomes a matter of necessity rather than something you actively seek out. Um, you know, I think it's really important to um, focus on how we can teach that next generation. How are we going to encourage educational programs for archaeologists, not just necessarily in grad school? Um, you know, you start seeing a lot of field schools that are really focused on community engagement um, Eleanor King at Howard University runs a really good one in the American Southwest, as do a number of others. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think those serve as really nice models. Um, Eleanor, for example, um, targets high school students, and she brings high school students from Washington, D.C., who show an interest in archaeology and undergraduates, and she takes them to work with Native American groups uh, in the American Southwest. Um, the opening up of sites to the public, right? One of, one of my... Uh, drums that I love to beat is the need for um, bringing in sustainable tourism experts, people who really know how to develop sites for tourism and not think of tourism as a bad word, right? Um, right. You know, instead of building fences and walls around our sites, we need to tear down those walls and to get people engaged 
uh, in these sites so that they understand their importance, whether it is cultural or economic, is irrelevant. Um, we have to bring people into the sites, and that's you know what you do and what National Geographic does. It's about communicating with the public, engaging them, inspiring them, um, and you know get them to get the communities, get the tourists, get everyone to want to protect these sites. Right? Ultimately, that's the goal. Are you finding cooperation even on the part of NGS to to do this sort of thing? Do they issue grants for development of cultural heritage programs? Does National Geographic issue grants? Yeah, yeah. At the moment, we do. Um, we've we've given kind of a, a scattering. It's not been a focused program of ours. We've um, had programs in the past focused on living cultural heritage, particularly indigenous groups, uh, endangered languages, cultures, that sort of thing. In archaeology, I would say the majority of our grants have in the past focused on uh, sort of plain exploration research uh, grants, sort of typical archaeology. But if you look through our, our long history of grant making, you do find projects that are really community-based, site development-based, sometimes even plain brick-and-mortar conservation-based. Right. Uh, it, it came down to what was the need. Um, I right. can think of uh, one example recently uh, when the site of Akrotiri in Santorini, you know, the, the famous Pompeii-like Bronze Age right. site in Greece, right. um, there was an earthquake a number of years ago, maybe four years ago, five years right. ago, and uh, the site suffered some damage. And so they shut down the site to tourists. They were really concerned that these, you know, 4,000-year-old walls were going to crumble in front of us. Uh, and we were approached by uh, a archaeologist named Imo Trinks from Austria, I believe, who um, asked us for funding to go in with a laser scanning team to create a, a, a perfect 3D model of Akrotiri that he could give to the Greeks to help them in their conservation efforts and to be used as an outreach uh, component to get the public interested again in Santorini, uh, and engage in a, in a 3D virtual space. And so that was an example of a, a grant that we gave that was very successful. Um, they made a wonderful model. We were able to do great media about it, and the Greeks were able to use that to help with their conservation plans. And we'll have to take a quick break here, and we will be right back with our fascinating guest, Dr. Chris Thornton of the National Geographic Society, right after these words, don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. 
Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest this evening is Dr. Christopher Thornton, who is the Director of Cultural Heritage and the Vice Chair of the Committee for Research and Exploration at the National Geographic Society. We have been discussing the critical issues confronting cultural heritage, um, ranging from education uh, for those of us who are in this profession and are starting to get oriented towards a more practical approach to archaeology and, and, and heritage and heritage sort of racing, I would say, almost to the forefront of what we do in this profession. And uh, one of the uh, most glaring issues in which there's a clear and immediate need for development of very, very thorough and, in a sense, dangerous heritage programs is in Syria, where uh, ISIS has, uh, in addition to creating so much death, destruction, and havoc, has gone into the smuggling and destruction of uh, archaeological sites and the artifacts that they extract from them. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about that situation and how you are somewhat involved with it and and uh, relate to that? Sure. I mean, I'm I'm in no way an expert on uh, the situation in Syria. Um, like like many people, I follow the news on this, and and we have a really wonderful National Geographic explorer. Salam al-Kantar, who's a Syrian archaeologist um, who does a lot of work in, in training curators and, and cultural heritage people in Syria. I mean, the, the situation in Syria is truly tragic, as you say. I mean, it, it's a humanitarian crisis, potentially a war crime. Um, and what's, what's happened at sites like Palmyra is really the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, not right. just in Syria in terms of the wide-scale looting and site destruction, some of which we see on TV, but most of which we don't. Um, you know, Syria itself is really the tip of the iceberg. Um, I mean, archaeologists know this. Um, the looting that's going on in Southeast Asia, the looting in South America, Central America, even the looting and site destruction that goes on in the United States. In the Southwest, It's a rampant yeah. problem around the world, and it's one that is not frequently addressed. One of the you know, if there is a silver lining from the disaster, the disastrous situation that is Syria, particularly in relation to ISIS, is that the world's attention is on this problem, 
right? The world's attention is on the blatant destruction of cultural heritage for the profiteering of essentially evil or, or truly bad organizations, not just ISIS, mafias, uh, you know, all sorts of illegal activities. Of course. So the National Geographic Society, of course, has been involved in this for a long time. Uh, many people don't know that uh, an organization called La Ruta Maya uh, was founded in the 1970s by an editor of the magazine to repatriate looted artifacts back to Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, um, and that still continues. And we helped push through some of the first litigation here in the United States um, to put in on the law books uh, protection of artifacts from Central American countries. We had a long legacy with the Maya archaeology, Matthew Sterling and others, George Stewart, of course. So it was part of our legacy, and we felt the need to, to combat what was happening at the time. Um, that has continued uh, in many places, particularly Egypt. We've been very involved working with the Egyptian authorities, um, trying to um, understand the scale of looting, the scale of destruction. Um, and most especially, many people um, have seen the news that National Geographic fellow Sarah Parkak, who is an Egyptologist and a, a specialist in satellite remote sensing, recently won the TED Prize. Um, and this is a $1 million prize um, given to uh, a, a scholar and a communicator who has a dream and who has a vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and Sarah's dream and her vision was to engage the public in this issue um, and to utilize the power of TED and the power of National Geographic um, to really try to gather a community of citizens concerned about what is happening to cultural heritage around the world uh, and engage them through some form of digital platform um, using satellite images and getting the public to um, collectively scan and analyze those, those satellite images to look for signs of looting and destruction, which we can then give back to the countries um, so that they know it is happening. Right. Um, that's, uh, that is obviously an issue that is awfully pressing. So how does she have an outline? Does she have a program for uh, implementing that? I mean, re registering the sites obviously is the most important thing because she would be using, uh, I would imagine, corona imagery, remote sensing technologies to figure that out. But then what happens? So right now, obviously, this is in the planning phase. Um, it, it was only just announced last month uh, at the TED main stage. Um, and it was a big vision. And so now we're collecting partners, um, both NGOs, but also looking for country partners. Um, we're looking for countries that want to engage with us on this issue, um, who feel that the use of thousands of concerned citizens around the world um, looking at satellite images um, is going to help them. Uh, and then eventually we're going to build it out to move forward. But at this point, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I have, uh, it's premature for me to tell you any more than that because I'm not sure if I know more than that. Right. Uh, but, but I think you know, the idea eventually is to, as I say, to collect those data uh, and provide them back to the country partner um, for their use um, in registering new sites and protecting the ones that um, potentially are threatened. 
And that's obviously a critical issue and one that uh, I think, and, and again, you know, what I'm thinking of, because I've been involved in this to some degree, I think that uh, what you said earlier is really important because now all of a sudden the type of work that we do falls into the spotlight. And that's the time to really start developing programs and to do these programs when, to some degree, obviously, the destruction and the death and, and the horrific massacres are the most important. But to some degree, we have this focus on us. And I think that nothing could be more important than to bring this to the forefront. So uh, you're saying that going forward, you're just at sort of the early phases of doing this, correct? That's right. Certainly the the project that Sarah Parkak has um, put out there as her big vision, we're really in the early stages um, of putting that together. Uh, and in terms of National Geographic more generally, the Sarah Parkak project is going to be one aspect of hopefully a larger vision of engaging with this issue uh, in different places around the world and with different uh, people, uh, including in the Middle East or in Asia or anywhere else. What kind of projects are you involved with yourself, and how are you able to do them in the context of National Geographic? So, as you said, I'm the director of uh, excavation in the Sultanate of Oman, um, which, of course, is uh, in the Middle East, the far east side of Arabia. Uh, it's a site I've been excavating first under Greg Posell and since 2012 um, as the director with um, a number of colleagues. Uh, it originally began purely as a research excavation. We were investigating, a, it's a Bronze Age site, and we were investigating Bronze Age monuments, and we eventually shifted to looking at domestic structures. Mm -hmm. As we were working there, it, it became apparent that the community that lives on and around the site were completely disconnected from the archaeological remains. They didn't loot. They weren't, you know, actively trying to, you know, deface them or anything like that. But to them, these piles of rocks uh, and these random mounds were just there. They were just a hindrance. Um, when they wanted to build a house, people would give them trouble, and they didn't understand why. Uh, and, you know, these are, this is a wealthy country. It's an oil and gas-rich country. Um, these are highly educated people. Um, and they just have no connection with the archaeological site, which is a World Heritage Site. Right. It's 1989, and, and even that, I mean, they knew it was a, a, an important site, but it, that itself meant nothing to them. And so, um, along with my co-director, Charlotte Cable, um, we started a program of um, engaging with uh, the community. And uh, we brought in a colleague from England, Ruth Young, uh, who specializes in historical archaeology and that kind of community engagement, kind of a, right. an ethno-archaeology project. Um, we started um, working with the modern village and interviewing them and talking to them about what, is, what does culture mean to them, what does heritage mean to them, um, what do they think when they see this site, and bringing them to our excavations and getting their thoughts and opinions but also sitting down with um, some of the village, you know, the people of authority in the village uh, and talking to them about, okay, if, if we were going to develop the site for tourism, how would you want us to do that? What, what, is it, what is it about the site that you feel is okay for outsiders to see and what isn't? And those sorts of programs actually were the basis of, of me learning more about cultural heritage. Like I said, I was not taught in school. It of was course. something that I learned in the field. Right. 
And so you're trying to engage the villagers in this, correct? And and, correct. and to make them part of it. Um, and, and that's working well? Yeah, it's so far so good. Uh, we've been there about eight years now, 2007. Yeah, eight or nine this years. Is, this, this is BAT? This is the site of BAT, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, we officially work for the Ministry of Heritage and Culture of Oman, who are based in Muscat, which is about right. a four-hour drive. So many of the people of BAT obviously have never met the people of the ministry. So we actually play uh, an interesting and important role as a bit of a go-between. You know, we, we engage with the community, we, we find out their needs, their wants, their experiences, and we relate that to the ministry back in Muscat. And then, of course, find out what the national government needs and wants. And we try to um, mediate those discussions um, for the eventual development of the site. Um, we have uh, the World Monument Fund um, is going to be uh, coming this year, working with my co-director, Charlotte Cable, to try to come up with a strategic plan for developing the site for tourism in a sustainable way that doesn't affect the community um, in a negative way, which is the most important thing. Of course, and, and, and I think that there are some initiatives uh, internationally that essentially are trying to integrate, if you will, cultural heritage sites with ecotourism, Absolutely. which for many third world countries, and of course Oman is a little bit different because, as you said, it's a very wealthy country, but certainly in other parts of the Middle East and other parts of the world, ecotourism can be viewed as a potential uh, gold mine for um, developing uh, sustainable uh, tour heritage tourism industries. We were trying to do that in Afghanistan, which of course is a major Difficult. challenge. But these are the types of challenges that I think we're going to be up against because a lot of the countries essentially that have the best archaeological archaeology also are them in the greatest turmoil so how do you see navigating that how would how would that sort of thing be done i mean as somebody who's involved in this sort of thing well to answer that i'll, I'll call out my friend and colleague larry coben who um is an archaeologist who works in peru and he created a nonprofit called mm -hmm. the sustainable preservation initiative um which is a nonprofit i've been studying very closely i've been um, looking at what they do and seeing if there's a way that we can become involved. Basically, uh, he took the premise of archaeological sites, besides being useful for research and science, are also economic, um, economic potential for the people who live around it. There is a potential there in the same way that uh, a source of oil or gold or something is, a, is an economic potential. Right. And then the question is, how do you extract that potential in a sustainable way that benefits the community as well as everybody else? Right. And so he created the SPI um, to do just that. And it's, it's grassroots, it's from the bottom up, find out what the community wants and needs, help them bring in capacity to teach them business models, tourism, management, etc., engage with the governments. Uh, and they've been very successful in Peru, and they, I know they're just expanding now into other countries like Guatemala and Jordan. Now, they're working in, in relatively safe, relatively um, you know, progressive countries that understand the importance of cultural heritage. 
right now working in, in a place like Syria to do that would, of course, be impossible. Of course. Um, but even in places like Cambodia, you know, it's one of the largest growing tourism industries in the world is Cambodia. I recently was in Siem Reap, got to see a lot of the temple sites like Angkor Wat. Absolutely fantastic, beautiful country, wonderful people. But of course, the country is littered with landmines um, from right. the Vietnam War and, and, and then the Khmer Rouge. The problem is you can't just open up a site for tourism and have people wandering around in a country where there's still millions and millions of landmines. Of course. So the, the, the challenges facing Cambodia are entirely different from the challenges facing Egypt or Syria or Iraq. And of course, they're very different from Peru. Um, and so what works in Peru, and, and I think Larry Coben would agree with this, are not going to be the same solutions um, as what will work in Cambodia. And I think one of the things that National Geographic can do is because we have an extensive network of archaeologists and, and conserv- conservationists who work around the world, we can tap into that network to really find solutions to these problems, no matter where they may be, and help tailor approaches um, to reach a sustainable solution, whether through tourism or other means. And you see that as a viable plan and, and framework for the future, obviously. I sure hope so. Yeah. Okay, we have to take another break, and we will be back shortly with our special guest, uh, Chris Thornton, uh, right after these words. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are discussing questions of cultural heritage with our guest, Dr. Chris Thornton of the National Geographic Society. And we've been looking at a variety of approaches and a variety of contexts in which cultural heritage and cultural heritage preservation and management are increasingly becoming a key component of of what archaeologists are doing, both in terms of administration, management, and, of course, developing programs that uh, will help maintain and preserve monuments at a time of of critical uh, turmoil in many parts of the world. And we were talking uh, peripherally about Syria because it's been thrust into the foreground uh, over the past uh, year and a half, two years. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about your efforts uh, to deal with the Syria situation in terms of cultural heritage and bringing people together to sort of try to wrap their heads around this situation. You know, the reality of the serious situation is that as archaeologists, we're, we're actually quite helpless in many ways. Um, you know, this is clearly a military and a political issue, and, you know, nobody is envisioning, you know, parachuting in some archaeologists to try to save a site. <laughs> that would right. go horribly wrong. Um, but one thing that uh, we did get involved in, which I think is, is the right way forward, um, it was actually not, I, I shouldn't take credit for it, it was... Uh, the AIA, the American Institute of Archaeology, and the American Schools of Oriental Research. Uh, and they teamed up because both uh, organizations, and they're really academic organizations, but both engage with cultural heritage, uh, and both work in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so they teamed up. Uh, and they came together and they said, um, there's a serious problem. There's all these archaeological and cultural heritage and conservation groups out there um, who are trying to work on the Syria crisis. How do we stop looting? How do we protect sites from afar? How do we give the Syrians what they need um, to protect the sites? Uh, how do we stop the sale of antiquity of Syrian antiquities in other countries, including the United States? And so all of these groups were kind of reinventing the wheel over and over and over again. And the AIA and ASOR came together, uh, and with the support of the National Endowment for the Humanities, um, they were able to bring about 20 different groups from all over the world, working, you know, archaeological and cultural heritage groups, working on the Syria crisis. They managed to bring them all to Washington, D.C. And they were looking for a space. They were looking for a neutral space where these scholars could sit down uh, and really have serious discussions about how are we going to work together, how are we going to share our data um, to really reach maximum impact. And, of course, the NEH, as, as the main sponsor, um, they spent one day at the NEH. Um, but the NEH encouraged them to reach out uh, to other organizations. And I was really pleased that they reached out to us. Uh, the National Geographic Society, of course, uh, is a well-known brand around the world. Uh, and many people know us for the work we do as a nonprofit. And we like to think of ourselves as a neutral space, uh, a place 
uh, a convening and catalytic space. Um, And we've done that with a number of other issues, uh, wildlife conservation, ocean conservation, you name it. Um, Mm -hmm. We, for example, we did a repatriation event last year. Uh, There were some Egyptian antiquities that had been uh, captured in customs here in Washington, D.C., Uh, And the United States government wanted to repatriate them to the Egyptians, but at the time, um, we were sort of struggling government to government with other issues, so these poor antiquities got kind of hung up. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Fred Hebert, our archaeology fellow here at National Geographic, um, he basically served as a go-between and managed to get the Egyptian ambassador and the head of the customs agency, ICE, to come to National Geographic and sign over um, those those looted antiquities to repatriate them. So that's something, and we did it on the big stage, you know, of course, and we communicated yeah. it to the public. That's the whole point. Um, so, you know, that was the kind of thing we could do. And so AIA and ASOR uh, came to me and said, Chris, do you think um, National Geographic would be willing and interested to host? Uh, and, you know, two quick phone calls later, I was able to give them a yes. Uh, and so we actually had the groups come here and unlike at ANEH, where they were sitting down, they were workshopping, really getting into the weeds, here at National Geographic, uh, we put them up on stage, uh, and we gave each group three minutes to tell us who they are, what they're doing, and why should we care. Right. And I was the moderator, so I was very strict, and uh, I held them to three minutes with a whip, uh, <laughs> a bull whip, of course, Indiana of Jones course. style. exactly. And... Uh, and it was great. It was absolutely fantastic. We invited media groups. We invited funding bodies. The State Department was here. Customs was here. Um, Smithsonian and other academic organizations all came uh, to sit in our auditorium and listen to these groups from all over the world talk about what they're doing and why should they care. Uh, and it was a great outreach opportunity for media, for funders, for everybody to um, you know hear what's going on and also to think about those areas of overlap where people could work together. Uh, And I was so pleased because what came out of that was AIA and ASOR was able to raise $40,000 to help these groups who took took part um, to come up with a plan for working together. Mm -hmm. So small collaboration grants. Uh, and it was, if you came at us with an idea for how your group and another group or two groups or five groups um, could work together to, to reach really maximum impact, we'll give the money to help you guys fly around to meet up, um, to do what you need to do to sync up and, and get moving collaboratively. So that was a really successful event um, that were really, you know, they were learning from each other. They were sometimes meeting each other for the first time. Sure. Uh, but also to learn about us, to learn about the AIA, about the NEH, ASOR, uh, and to learn that we're resources for them, that we can try to help um, to open doors and to make what they're trying to accomplish to actually make it come true. And does it have any legs? I mean, do you think it'll go a little bit farther? I sure hope so. Um, one thing, for example, there are a number of groups out there that are all uh, using satellite remote sensing um, to try to detect looting and site destruction, like I mentioned Sarah Parkak and her big dream. The problem is if, if every group out there is, is looking at Syria and paying thousands of dollars for satellite imagery, spending tens of thousands of dollars on the analysis, etc., of course, of what course. a waste of money. 
Yeah. But if they work together and one group says, we'll take the East and you take the West <laughs> and we'll put all that data in a shared database, right. wouldn't, wouldn't that be much more exciting? So, so that's the kind of thing that, that we're very hopeful is going to come out of this. We, we've just seen the applications for these collaborative grants uh, and they look really good. So we're very hopeful. And that's your plan going forward to uh, to integrate these groups and to start them out with obviously non-invasive stuff because yeah, right. uh, yeah uh, no parachuting in archaeology no parachuting <laughs> in but but you know one of one of the ideas that that we had discussed for Afghanistan and and I'm curious as to how you would would view this is in areas that are semi-stable developing uh, archaeological SWAT teams to actually go into those areas for short periods of time and uh, meet with the people who will be there forever, which would be obviously the museum personnel and the university personnel, and just sort of uh, instruct them and show them how we can do this type of planning quickly and right. set up priorities for what has to happen for sites that essentially have to essentially be fortified against potential situation like in, in Afghanistan when you never know when the next bomb will go off or when there's going to be another turbulent uh, overthrow of the regime. And I think, you know, we had talked about that at one of those meetings in D.C. And I think it met with some confusion because everybody was so involved in this really long-range planning, but I, I think that there's an immediacy to this that has to be addressed as well. And uh, I'd be curious to see if, if uh, your organization might look into that sort of thing. Because, they, you know, we have so many sophisticated tools at this point that uh, we really need to avoid this happening again and try to figure out emergency measures to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, I mean, of course, there are organizations like the U.S. Committee of the Blue Shield uh -huh. who do this exactly in war zones that we're involved in. Right. Um, that is, they go in with the military and they help shore up archaeological sites, protect museum uh -huh. collections, that kind of thing. Um, I think what you're talking about is in, in not of areas of war zone, but of areas of civil unrest or right. economic downturn. Right. Um, where you're not looking at Kalashnikovs, but you're looking at a number of other problems. I absolutely think um, there's a space for that. Um, we, you know, there are a lot of organizations out there that are doing inventory projects, trying to help um, developing nations to inventory their collections and make those public so that should a museum be looted or should um, you know, stuff go missing, uh, you know, international police, Interpol, and others can... Uh, immediately say, that is in this database, it is clearly looted, we know it needs to go back to X place. Right. Um, that sort of thing is really important. You know, that kind of rapid conservation work where civil unrest is happening and we say, we got to get in there and we got to protect a site, I think it'd be really difficult um, because it would be about how do you second guess which site is going to be damaged. The, the really big ones, like you know, if Jordan were to go into civil war, God forbid, tomorrow, right. um, obviously everyone and their brother would flock to Petra, Petra with, you know, pillows and blankets just to <laughs> try to protect it. But what about the, you know, 1,200 other important sites of in Jordan? Course. And but I think the, that's the hard yeah, part. 
Well, I, I think that, that certainly that's critical. But, you know, one of the things that can be done is sites can be prioritized. Yeah. Um, emergency excavations can be conducted uh, yeah. so that looting is minimized if there are repositories that are identified that can be fortified. There's all sorts of ways of doing this. I guess my real question to you, Chris, is how do we start to encourage the universities to train people in that direction? Because the real issue here is that when you're doing this kind of work you already have to have the skill set and that's the problem that we have um, yeah I, we I have to train people question. from square one and they're in instructed by their faculty members well you learn this thing on the job well you don't learn these things on the job you have to be ready to go yeah no I would and agree with that that's a real problem going forward I would definitely agree with that. I think it should be required, particularly at the PhD level, that every archaeologist come out with at least one class under their belt that talks to them about cultural heritage and possibly community engagement um, as, a, as a significant part of what we do as archaeologists, professional archaeologists. Um, you know, I think there's also an opportunity um, at international levels, uh, not just in universities, but often ministries. Um, right. the, the, the ministries that deal with archaeological sites are not always run by archaeologists. Um, and they are looking to us as archaeologists, whether we're American or Peruvian or whatever, um, they look to us for advice. Uh, and sometimes, you know, and, and this I'm thinking of my work in Oman. Oman is a, a relatively wealthy country, um, very calm, very safe. Um, very good people and very interesting archaeology. The problem is there aren't a lot of Omani archaeologists. No. Um, there's a handful. Uh, most of them are at the university. So That's they right. don't have a CRM policy. No, they, they don't. They have laws on the books that protect sites and, and laws on the books about if there's construction, you should do archaeology first, et cetera, et cetera. But there's not actually the capacity in country to do that. So one of the things that, you know, I thinking long-term, not only do we need to train Western archaeologists or archaeologists in general to know more about cultural heritage, we need to train governments to understand the importance of cultural resource management and what is needed in terms of capacity. Um, they don't need professors in a university. No, they that's need right. skilled archaeologists, um, sometimes park managers, you know, uh, right. in many cases, a, a park manager is much more useful than a, than a research archaeologist. So it's about helping them build that capacity and understanding what they will need um, in order to protect the heritage that they have in a sustainable and thoughtful way. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring our program to an end. My guest has been Dr. Chris Thornton of the National Geographic Society, who has uh, very carefully explained to us how cultural heritage has to be approached going forward in areas that are in troubled situations, and also has talked to us a lot about education in our field and how we have to take a signal from a lot of other places where applied venues are, are becoming increasingly important. I want to thank you, Chris, for appearing on the program. Thank you, Joe. It's been great. And on that note, we will say good evening, and we will run into you next week on another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Thank you. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.